0: This podcast examines issues on violence driven by gender inequality, a profound and widespread global health problem that is likely to have personally touched the lives of our listeners. Listen with care and compassion, and please talk to someone should anything come up for you while listening to this episode. For more resources, email svri at svri.org.
1: There's really a dearth of direct funding for local groups, local leadership, feminist organizations who are typically the ones that are going to know how to move the needle.
0: You're listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast from the SVRI. I'm Elizabeth Dartnell,
2: And I am Angelica Pino. Our vision is to see a world free of violence against women and violence against children. And in this podcast, we'll learn how to make that vision a reality.
0: In today's episode, we're discussing the issue of decolonizing knowledge and funding on violence against women.
3: I'm Joy Watson. I work in the area of feminist research. In this area of work, I work a lot with decision makers, but I also make a concerted effort to work with women's rights organizations, specifically in trying to advise them on the strategic points of intervention in advocacy and engaging with the state for social transformation.
1: Alongside Joy, we have Terry McGovern. I'm actually a human rights lawyer and an activist. I was a public interest lawyer, a poverty lawyer during the early years of the HIV AIDS movement, did a lot of impact litigation because of the U.S. government's failure to address HIV and women, and then did a whole bunch of global work related to that set of issues, gender justice. I was at the Ford Foundation for a bunch of years in the Gender Rights and Equality Unit, Then came back to Colombia, where I was running the health and human rights work. I now chair an academic department and serve as director of the Global Health Justice and Governance Program.
0: And we'll also hear from Tarasai Machuchu mcmillan Executive Director at Mosaic Women's Training Service and Healing Center in South Africa. We are
4: what we call a responsive preventive violence Against women organization. Uh, what that means is that we provide response services. So we're a support organization that provides counseling, support, and healing, but short. Uh, medium or long-term counselling to survivors of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. We provide access to justice services in the domestic violence courts. We also provide first response services to victims of domestic and sexual violence at Tutuzela care centres. So we run three Tutuzela care centre services. And we also have two shelters that we run in on the garden route uh, in the rural areas.
2: As today's episode is all about decolonizing knowledge, let's start by finding out what this means exactly. Joy explains,
3: "Colonialism is a very complex, multidimensional beast that sort of reaches its tentacles out <laughs> to spew poison into all aspects of knowledge production and and how knowledge is used." And you know, I think for me what's important is that knowledge precedes understanding. We use knowledge products for power within our lives in some ways. And so when we think about knowledge or research, I think that it's important to recognize that it exists within a web of relationships. And these relationships are rooted in time, in place, and in power. Post-colonial feminist theory has shown us how the, this web of relationships that underpin essentially Western epistemological frameworks have worked to shut down and, you know, very consciously so, the cultural and historical experiences of the developing world. And in doing that, they've ignored the diversity of experiences across class, race, gender, and spatial location. Western values, therefore, Western ways of knowing and doing have been centered. So when we talk about decolonizing knowledge i see it happening at three levels and each of these levels are framed through the lens of ethics so the very first level the big picture the macro level is the link between knowledge and social justice so you know if we if we think about this picture of decolonizing knowledge the most important thing is how is knowledge changing people's lives so it's the ethics of using knowledge or research findings and translating them to action because, you know, pieces of paper are no good without them being transformed into action that drives change. So this is where we start thinking about advocacy, social mobilization, inputting into policy processes, and how we are using knowledge as an agent of transformation to subvert power and inequity and at different levels, at a global level, at a national leg- level, at community level. Then the second layer of that picture is the meso level. And yeah, I sort of think about decolonizing knowledge in terms of resources, because resources are very important. And it's the ethics of shifting resources so that knowledge is inclusive. You know, And here we need to think about what knowledge is seen and heard what knowledge is not seen and heard? How do we move resources to promote equity? And this, I think, invariably means following the money going to research. Where is it going? Which are the subject areas that are prioritized? What is not prioritized? Which countries and communities are getting the resources? And at which level global, national, community-based who is leading the research and how does this promote equity in terms of who's involved in analyzing data and writing up findings. And then the last layer of that picture, the micro level is how we conscious of decolonization in all aspects of the research process. So this is where we look at research design, the theoretical framework, the methods we use, the literature we source, how we gather data, The values that underpin the research that we do. And in in doing this, it's very important that Indigenous people are centered, that they become the researchers and not just the researched, that their worldviews are centered, that we look at the issue of language, that we don't undermine local knowledge and experiences of marginalized groups, that we build trust and engage in respectful knowledge practice that is culturally appropriate. And that in everything that we do, that it's underpinned by an intersectional lens.
0: Decolonizing knowledge and practice-based knowledge are two concepts that go hand in hand. Tarasai tells us how the organization implements practice-based knowledge and how it can be used to improve programs such as Mosaic's SAFE project.
4: Practice-based knowledge is really about using experiences, lived realities, to drive and design programs. So, for instance, when Roline and the community workers were training each other, and, and so as a social worker,s she then trained community workers to, you know, to offer counselling and support and healing programs. But what we were doing was then we were referring the clients to be like, you can get a protection order, go to court, you get assistance. Then they'll come, they came back to us and said, well, when I go to court, uh, it's all in English or in Afrikaans, but I'm speaking in and they're not able to assist me. So already we see, okay, there's a barrier to our service here. So we then advocated for us to start the court support program in which we said we needed a supportive element within the court process before the clerk where somebody assists the client to filter emotion and fact and be able to put it in a way that the magistrate would understand. Because another barrier was that, yes, then they would go, the clerk would assist them, but because it was all emotional, nobody was helping them, then the magistrate would throw out the case and say, you need to bring notice to show cause, or we can't assist you, They were not they were not assisting them in providing the protection order. So that's another thing that then helped us to say, okay, we can see that clients are being pushed away, we add another element into the program. So it's not something that has been tested or researched, but it's something that's been experienced in practice. And as we notice and witness a barrier, we respond to it. And then, of course, we then develop the practice. I thanks so much. Um, Such a rich
0: understanding of practice-based knowledge. How does practice-based knowledge, in your opinion, contribute to the decolonization of knowledge in our field? Or how are the
4: two linked? in our field so let's test the field in itself ngos exist particularly for vulnerable communities vulnerable communities have a history of oppression power you know where people exert power so system systematically you are working with disenfranchised communities violence is rooted in disempowerment power and control So if we are thinking of decolonizing knowledge and experience and using practice-based knowledge is when we then come in as practitioners, as NGOs, you do not want to perpetrate the same violence that I'm experiencing in the home, in the relationship or in my community. What you must come with is you are coming to learn my experience first before you design your outcome and your output. That's decolonizing the way we develop the community. So for instance, part of decolonization has to do with the way that we design even our interventions. Part of it is if we are just designing, engaging men and boys program, for instance, to happen during the day when everyone is at work, then that means we are only looking at disempowered people to attend our trainings that means we are saying violence is perpetrated by poor black unemployed men in townships because they're the only ones who can attend the workshops uh, gender transformative workshops during the day but if we are looking at it from a very decolonized lens we are looking at ensuring that it's not just poor black unemployed males in the township who are perpetrating violence, but we're looking at it from an intersectionality perspective. That means we are going to be engaging employers, governments, university institutions to give time and access to everyone in their system to participate in workshops so that we are really starting to advance gender equality. You know what I mean? So it's the way that we're thinking in practice. What is the lived reality of the community? Taisai mentioned legal support there. It is likely
2: that those in the communities affected by violence against women have the solutions but struggle to see them acted upon due to structural barriers and complex policies. So, how can legal experts ensure the full inclusion and the lived experiences and knowledge of those most affected?
1: What I learned very early on is that HIV-positive women actually had the answers. They had the answers to the most complex challenges. What they didn't have was an understanding of the systems, the embedded structural problems in the systems that were causing them to have all kinds of problems. So I. I have always seen my role as technical assistance. I'm trained in a certain way so I can explain. This is the way the system has put you in the situation that you're in. But very much as you know, just using my expertise to give them the information they need to lead. So I think this whole concept of lawyers or other people speaking for people is completely wrong we are there to help. And in particular, in our case, we are there to actually take full responsibility for the ways that the global north is doing all kinds of damage and really understand that local people need to lead uh, and certainly discard completely this notion that we should be speaking for people. Very early on in my career, before there was AIDS treatment, There were no women in any of the kind of federal entities in the U.S. There were no women in any of the funding, decision-making, and we started a training program where we actually explained all of the federal systems, and, you know, all the donors said, these are women with AIDS. They are, this is before there was treatment. They're never going to come to a class. They're never going to attend this. This is not going to happen. In fact, we had a huge waiting list, and the women who went through this training ended up infiltrating all of these kind of power spaces, councils, federal advisory committees, and we saw a massive shift in how kind of HIV funding and policymaking making was done because the women had infiltrated the system. But that training piece was very, very important because how is a person going to know about all of these things unless they get some training? So I think there's really exciting uh, results when we kind of combine forces and see the leaders as being the directly affected folks. And also part of that program was processing the incredible racism and sexism the women faced in these contexts and kind of working with them through that.
0: Joy and her colleagues, along with the SVRI, led the Tracking Funding in the Field of Violence Against Women study. This study forms part of the SVRI's portfolio of decolonizing research resources, which includes the Global Shared Research Agenda and SVRI's Ethical Funding Guide, Joy explains how all of these tools come together to help us advocate for more and better resources for research on violence against women in low- and middle-income countries.
3: These three tools um, have been very carefully thought through because they speak to each other. They're interrelated in working towards decolonized knowledge production in the area of violence against women specifically. So they, they tell us, firstly, what do we need to know more about? Two, what funding is going into research on violence against women? And three, how do we ethically fund research? And, you know, I think that what is important about these tools is that in gathering the data for these tools, the process for so doing was inclusive and it was participatory. So when we look at, for example, the global um, shared research agenda, it wasn't just an endeavor to talk to experts Um, It involved multiple stakeholders who had a say in shaping what that agenda should look like. And so this research agenda tells us what the priority areas for research are informed by a number, a range of different voices. And it tells us what the the gaps in knowledge um, are, importantly. Then with the tracking funding project, this project sought to track the funding flows to research on violence against women in low- and middle-income countries. And in trying to center low- to middle-income countries, it conducted four case studies in low- and middle-income countries. And what it showed us was that not enough money is going to research. In a global context, let me just say that violence against women right now is politically naval. Everybody is jumping on the end-violence-against-women bandwagon, right? It's what politicians and global leaders want to be seen to be politically correct in talking about and making commitment to. But this piece of work showed us that this is pretty much political rhetoric, that it's not backed up with adequate resource allocation, especially so for research. And when we look now at that Generation Equality Fund, which was, you know, with great fanfare in last year, the announcement that 40 billion US dollars would go to this work and our work just beginning to show us that of that $40 billion, only about $2 billion has been pledged to support the work of women's rights organizations and feminist movements. And that much of this is actually not new money. So I've spent a lot of my time tracking money going to violence against women, specifically at a national level in South Africa. And the single biggest lesson that I've learned is that commitments are made to put money into violence against women. Funding is talked about, but the biggest lesson is that mostly budgets don't change and the money ends up not being committed. And so this is where we have to have our eye on the ball. The third piece of, of work was the ethical guidelines. And this, again, also, you know, it's important in decolonizing knowledge because it was a consultative process with many different stakeholders, including funders, researchers and practitioners. and. Very concerted efforts were made to ensure that there was participation from researchers and practitioners from low- and middle-income countries. So this really is our roadmap for ensuring that funding to research on violence against women is underpinned by an ethical framework. So now if we look at what we have with these three pieces of work, we have all the ingredients, right, but we have to go about baking the cake And this is where we start to look at the uptake of of these findings. How do we now engage in advocacy to ensure that we transform knowledge production?
2: As well as the need for the decolonization of knowledge, funding in the field also needs to be decolonized. Terry is a powerful advocate for revisioning how research is funded in low and middle income countries and explains why the current funding system Needs an overhaul.
1: Yeah, you know, let me start with what we found in this area of GBV in the three countries, Colombia, Kenya, and Uganda. Despite years of investments in gender-based violence, we haven't seen great reduction in the rates. We kind of found major problems in what and who international donors do and don't fund and how they fund. What we saw is that much of what's labeled gender-based violence funding is not going to the most innovative interventions or innovative groups. A lot of it isn't even actively going to support gender-based violence work. Bad data is partially to blame. The current data collection systems leave out hard-to-reach populations, privilege, interpersonal violence over less visible forms of gender-based violence, and don't look at intersecting and cumulative impacts. This means that a lot of the funding is kind of misguided. One of the biggest issues is the funding landscape. It's really hard to assess, it's opaque. The Global North funders control most of the funding data. Even databases that are comprehensive really have conflicting information, there's flaws that make it impossible to disaggregate by the type of gender-based violence, the type of intervention, or the populations affected. Very few of these grant databases or project descriptions really tell us about methods or indicators used to assess impact. So without that kind of information, it's really hard to figure out how to plan, how to do better. Actually, when you look at gender-based violence funding and exclude when you take apart the grants, you see that a lot of the grants that are categorized as gender-based violence are really primarily supporting other things like humanitarian programming. When we separated out GBV-related funding versus GBV-primary funding, in Colombia, we saw the number reported, which was $561.78 in GBV funding, actually shrunk to 14296, right? And this carried across the three countries. So there's this great big number that's called GBV funding, but in fact, very little of it is specifically going to primarily gender-based violence work. In the COVID pandemic, we saw that gender-based violence funding only accounted for 55 million out of $26 trillion dollars in funding opportunities, and these were mostly from international financial institutions. UN-led COVID-19 country appeals rarely earmarked GBV projects and lots of examples of that. Even private foundations had very little earmarking for gender-based violence. I would say the dominance of multilateral and bilateral donors is really shaping the funding landscape in ways that are problematic they are often unlikely to innovate or tackle hard topics that are going to get them into trouble with governments. This really limits the type of work that is being funded. And basically, you see a lot of funding going to programs that won't really move the needle significantly. There's a reluctance to take on issues around plural legal systems, which can really embed discrimination. They can also be good. But particularly, you see Not enough funding going to LGBTQ people, indigenous people, safe abortion, bodily autonomy. Very clearly, social and gender norm shifting is underfunded. And you see a lot of funding to individual actions versus kind of taking apart structural issues that are related to gender based violence. You see a handful of foundations are the main source of direct funding to the local groups that are really doing the most innovative work. And that funding is shrinking, not growing. So what does the decolonization
0: of funding look like in practice? Joy and Tarasai share their thoughts.
3: The current reality is that the Global North funds, and much of the time, it leads research in the Global South. So we have to look at that balance of power between donors, researchers, and the communities who are participating in the research. From the tracking funding studies, two key themes emerged. The first was we have to ensure that funders are promoting diversity and equity in who gets money to conduct research. So to whom is the money going? And then the second area pertains to ensuring funding is going to research on violence against women that facilitates an intersectional and contextually relevant understanding of violence against women. That's the who's getting the money, and then what is the money for? And is it for understanding issues that are needed in the global south and based upon the specific nuances and dynamics in terms of what th- those those communities and countries need? And specifically, I think that we need to look at funders invest in building research and organizational development skills in low- and middle-income countries, including at community-based level, and they should look at funding for collaborative work more and skills transfer through building research partnerships. Both academic research and practice-based knowledge have a very important role to play in the research ecosystem. And so we really need to look at how we create dynamic, exciting, creative research collaborations between academic civil society organizations and even policymakers. Um, with a view to combining expertise and impacting on policy imperatives. Lastly, I think that funders should seek to ensure that in addition to ensuring greater funding flows to research led by researchers in low- and middle-income countries, that the research initiatives are led by socially marginalized groups, including BIPOC researchers, researchers with disability, that we're making sure that diversity here is centred.
4: Currently, the funding landscape is very much a top-down, it's a colonial framework, and it's a disempowering framework, and it's about power and control. They who have the money hold the power to which strategies, interventions operate. So what happens is that I, as the person on the receiving end of whether it's a funding proposal or a network engagement in which I engage with donors and then they set the targets, but it's often set in the framework of the donor. And even if we look at the big development donors that, that mostly are setting the agenda, is that they have set the agenda in close setting without engaging with civil society so civil society we are merely recipients of frameworks that we were not part of but we what works on the ground does not match what the donor puts you need to understand the power of your money but you also need to understand that you lack understanding of the lived reality so work together with civil society and then be like, this is what works. But also enable civil society to do the work. Because I understand the limitations as a practice-based. So I've highlighted how practice practitioners and practice-based knowledge can inform programs. But I understand that programs must be documented in a way that we must show this is what works so that we are able to replicate. So we recognize there is need for research, for knowledge-based practitioners to come and work with us as practitioners. But that must also be so that donors are not creating competition where we value one side of the table over the other. And that's where the decoloniality is very important. Because then you end up just creating knowledge from a vacuum and not linking it to lived realities. And when donors start linking practice and knowledge and not valuing one over the other, again, we can see we can really properly decolonize what we are talking about here in terms of ensuring that funding is decolonized and knowledge is decolonized. With all this in mind
2: and In the knowledge that the power balance needs to be addressed, can and should northern-based researchers ever do research in the Global South?
1: Rightly so. Many, even groups in the U.S. South, but groups in the Global South, rightfully see Global North researchers, Columbia universities, as, as an extractive industry. Like we come and we leave nothing and we don't partner. And I think... In our Global Health Justice and Governance Program, we see our role as really important in sorting out the damage the Global North systems are doing in the Global South. So that is actually what we're trying to do around this gender-based violence, like sort out how the largely Global North multilateral system is actually impeding progress. In addition, we do partnership very, very differently we really understand that our role is technical assistance and we need to follow the leadership of local actors and amplify those voices Not and just partner in a way that's helpful. I think that, uh, that it's very, very important that global North entities disrupt rather than reinforce a problematic North-South power dynamics. And I think we have a legitimate role in calling out some of the problems that are being created by the Global North's multilateral dominance.
0: On that note, how can we bring all the stakeholders together effectively? How can we integrate the knowledge of activists, practitioners, feminists, and women's rights organizations to better ensure the creation of sound, evidence-informed interventions?
3: All the stakeholders that you highlight there have a very important role to play in the knowledge ecosystem. I think that for a long time, unfortunately, we've worked in silos. If we could think about this as a party instead of work, we all have to be at the party and participating. And the things to think about here are what are the skills and strengths that each stakeholder brings to the party and how do we tap into that? How do we think about developing evidence-based interventions You need a basket of different things there. And in this basket, we need an understanding of what the problem is within a very specific context. We need relationships with practitioners who work in those areas and are familiar with the permutations of violence against women in a particular community. And what is needed, because they know, right, what is needed in terms of effective interventions to scale. And then we need researchers who can collect and analyze data. We need donors who are prepared to fund these interventions in dynamic and creative ways where it's a partnership between those donors and the practitioners and the researchers? We need the activists, very important to taking up the research findings in driving that social change. Most importantly, and I think this is where we sometimes don't do so well is that we have to have the reflexivity to reflect on our own roles. The extent to which I come into a space and within my own small sphere of influence, how am I genuinely contributing to social change? We each have have to ask ourselves that question. We have to be cognizant of what other motives and agendas might drive us. And we have to be honest and able to reflect on the extent to which we are adding to solutions or taking away from them. You know How are we contributing or detracting from the end goal?
2: Terry often talks about the importance of deep and respectful partnerships between researchers, practitioners and global North and South players. She explains how this works in practice.
1: We worked with, I'll talk about our Global Gag Rule work. I mean, if you're really going to have partnership, it means you design the research together. You agree on what needs to be researched. You, every step of the way, are doing that. It's not just this afterthought. So in the Global Gag Rule research, we really, at the beginning, talked to folks about their advocacy, learning priorities, what they were wanting this data for, what did they want to collect the impacts of the global gag rule for? Did they want to shift local, national, county level? You know, that kind of dialogue from the very beginning, making it clear that that our partners would be the leads on the papers, you know, kind of being very, very transparent and upfront, and also building our research in a way that that is driven by the needs of the local community. Once we had collected the data in the countries that we were working on, and that one was Kenya, Nepal, and Madagascar, we actually went back and met with everybody, and also invited meetings with activists, policy folks, to strategize about how this research could be best translated into various kind of advocacy or policy work, and also took very seriously co-developing data analysis skills. So every step of the way, it was collaborative. And I think the research was a lot stronger for that. Also, always, always, always being willing to completely listen and acknowledge the incredibly problematic history of research as an extractive industry. I think it's absolutely essential that Global North entities completely own up and acknowledge that this is the history this is the context and really give a lot of thought to doing things differently
2: and finally are our guests optimistic about the future can decolonizing knowledge shift the power balance to enable better funding and research into balance against women
3: going to be honest and say that the moments when, (laughs) you know, the days when I wake up and I'm not optimistic, I feel like I've been doing feminist work for a long time and that the wheels of change grind very slowly, right? That we work so hard and and, um, there are certainly gains, but those gains are hard fought and they take a long while to give effect. But I think that What's also exciting is that some of these gains, have I don't know, it's something about the particular point in time that we find ourselves, some of these gains are a lot more evident if we look at how the younger generation have taken up the discourse of feminism, of inclusivity, of participation, and how they're pushing the envelope in terms of creating social equity and building – a different kind of social order with different kinds of values. And so I think that, you know, specifically as it comes to knowledge production, I think that there are very exciting initiatives in having the global shared research agenda, in being cognizant of where money is going, in having a blueprint for how to fund violence against women and research on violence against women, and so it's certainly optimistic but I, you know there's a way to go let me let me put it that way
1: women around the world women activists really are so powerful we see women being the human rights defenders we see women taking the lead on all the kind of extractive industry work i think that there is absolute hope particularly if we're able to shift the way that we are working together and building alliances I think that this formula of kind of understanding that it takes a lot of different types of players to come together to figure out how to shift things is tremendously exciting. I teach now, I'm teaching now, and I have a, a whole lot of international students. And I just have to say that the students are incredibly inspiring. Young people are not interested in hearing about disparities anymore. They're not interested in the pileup and the litany of bad outcomes. They're totally interested in fixing it. And they kind of innately get that it's gonna be the people on the ground and are directly affected communities who have the answers and their role coming out of as public health folks is to really follow, not lead. So all of this gives me tremendous optimism
4: The civil society sector, you know, has a stereotype of being led by white women for the longest time. And having this conversation with a couple of white women is very empowering. It makes me optimistic about the future (laughs) because it means we are questioning our power. We are questioning where we are. And we are seeing that we need to be able to dismantle What's currently, you know, we're seeing that what's, what, what's here is not enough. And so I'm optimistic about where we are going. Because when we see it's not enough, we are able to then say we need to change it. And that's where we are. Thanks to our guests, Joy Watson, Terry McGovern,
0: and
2: Teresai mchuchu Macmillan for joining us on the podcast. I'm Elizabeth Dartnell, And I am Anjali Gopino. You have been listening to the Sexual Violence Research Podcast by the SVRI. To find out more about our vision, visit svri.org. To free the world of violence against women and
0: violence against children, we need everyone to hear our message. So please subscribe, like and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this episode far and wide.
2: Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time for the final episode of season one when we will be discussing how to conduct research on women ethically.
3: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts.
4: Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.